Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're very glad for your interest in spiritual matters. What are we looking for out of life? It's one of life's major questions. If we're honest with ourselves and we dig down deep to try to find the answer, at a very fundamental level, we're looking for unity in relationships. We're looking for unity relationships to some degree in our country. That is why in the seal of the United States, E Pluribus Unum is written, out of many, one. We're looking for unity in our relationships with family and friends, other loved ones. And as we've been exploring, this is right and good and something that we should expect based upon what Jesus has established for us in John 17, 20 through 23 that God is one. He is not one person, but he is one in relational unity. He shares in love within himself, and he wants to share in relationship with offspring in that loving relationship, 1 John 4, 8. Humanity is made in God's image as his offspring, and therefore man is made to share in relationship with God and with one another. The creation that God made was good, but corrupted by the introduction of sin and death. In Romans 8, 18 through 23, sin is the source of all pain, misery, suffering, and evil in this world. And humans suffer the consequences of sin. They participate in sin. They cannot solve their sin problem on their own because they are guilty of transgression. And the penalties that they would bear is due and right in Romans 5, 3, 20, 23, chapter 5 and 6, 23. But God did what man could not do by showing his love, grace, and mercy in the one man, Jesus of Nazareth who lived, taught, did good, and proclaimed the kingdom in his life. He lived without sin and suffered on our behalf so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. And God raised him from the dead, giving us hope in the resurrection. And Jesus now reigns as Lord in his kingdom. And we need to believe in him, confess his name, repent of sin, be immersed in water in his name, and then serve him. And through Jesus, we can be reconciled back to God, our creator. Now, far too often, we discuss... Reconciliation with God, this is where it ends. That, okay, the individual has been reconciled back with his God. But we do well to consider again what we can see in John chapter 17. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become one, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We need to consider this passage in its context. Jesus uh, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's betrayed. This is often called the high priestly prayer. It comes right after Jesus has had his very long discourse with his disciples in John chapters 13 through 16. And right after this prayer, he will be betrayed, he will go on trial, and he will be executed on the cross. In John 18 and 19. So Jesus begins his prayer by praying on behalf of the disciples around him, the eleven, who would become the apostles and who would proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But in verse 20, he says he's not asking only for them, but also for everyone who believe in him. Through their word. Okay, so who are these people? Well, anybody who's heard the gospel from the apostles and obeyed it. This would be the early Christians, but 
would also be true of everybody who has ever followed after that. So what does Jesus want for these followers? He prays that they may all be one. So yes, believers are to be one as God is one, and we've seen much in this passage about the unity of God, the nature of God. But the idea is that believers are to be one as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. That's the idea. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. So believers as individuals should be in the Father and the Son, but the believers also should be perfectly one and in the Father and the Son, that we should be in God and God in us. So without a doubt, God wants us to be one, not just with him, but also with one another. But how is that possible? How can we be one with God and also one with each other? The Apostle Paul helps us out a little bit with this in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So, Paul speaks of himself and the believers in Rome as one body in Christ. In this way, they are individually members of one another, having many members of different functions. And this helps us understand this, because we're seen as the body of Christ. Now, he doesn't mean Jesus' physical body. Uh, Paul recognized that such as it ascended to heaven, having been raised from the dead. That's where he saw Jesus in 1 Corinthians 9, Acts 9. Instead, he's stressing this spiritual relationship that exists among the people of God. It's not as if believers are merely individually in Christ. Believers are also members of one another in Christ's body. And consider the human body. We have different parts that have individual functions. The hands and lungs are different and perform different functions. Now, it's true that there are a lot of parts who will have interconnected functions, for instance, the digestive system. But even the digestive system, each part has its unique role. The tongue, the esophagus, the stomach, the intestines, and so on and so forth. And yet all of these parts of the body make up a composite whole. Each individual working part is necessary, but they all must work to the benefit of the whole. Without the others, they're not going to be able to do their functioning as well. This is something we should not doubt, but if we were to do so, just think about what happens when one part of the body doesn't work well. The whole suffers. Even something as small as some of the bones or, or muscles in the ear. If you have a, an earache, you can completely cause the entire body to want to shut down, even though the ear is an extremely small part of the body. So that is how Paul can say that we are many parts but one body. And that's the way it is in Christ's body. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, Christ is the head of his body. And so the, all people who are in Christ are going to follow his commands. And his word and life are the basis upon which we relate to God and with each other. Just like in the human head, the brain is in charge and responsible for all the functioning of the body, so it is in the body of Christ, Christ is that head. Now here in Romans chapter 12, actually verses 3 through 8, and also in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, Paul will describe the functions of the body of Christ. Recognizing the different people have different abilities and functions. This is not a basis upon which to feel uh, superior and inferior to each other. Instead, it's an opportunity to serve each other, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Now, some people are going to have more public, obvious roles. Some people may have more private and discreet roles. But all prove necessary for functioning. 
All the parts of the body work together to build each other up. They rejoice with those who rejoice, and they suffer along with those who suffer. It should be stressed that the idea that Christians are one body of Christ is very radical. In Galatians 3 and in verse 28, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the body, declares the following. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, he'll go so far as to neither Scythian nor barbarian as well. It's not hard to notice that people have built up a lot of barriers against each other. They've created tribal in-groups and out-groups. People are often divided on account of age, ethnicity, language, race, culture, class, politics, geography, even sports teams. Now, some of those barriers, like maybe sports teams, seem frivolous. Others prove deadly serious. The cause of factionalism and war between ethnicities, cultures, nations, and so on and so forth. The great message of the gospel, beyond the death of Christ for our sins, is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we're told in verse 13 of chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, in context, Paul's talking about the barrier between Jew and Gentile. But that would prove true with any other barrier. Because no matter how divided people might be in terms of worldly issues, class, race, ethnicity, affiliations, or so on and so forth, having a shared faith in Christ is supposed to prove stronger and more resilient than anything that would keep people apart. And it's in this way that God's people are to be one in Jesus, faith that represent his body, and that this is something that is challenging and difficult in any age. So if the people of God are to be one body in Christ, what's the form this body takes? Well, we already mentioned the Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 is where we're told that Christ is the head of his body. It's not where Paul ends it, though. Paul will then say that his body is the church. Now, this association might seem surprising to some. A lot of people hear church, they, churches, they think of old buildings, they think of denominational organizations. And a lot of people have very little they want to do with them. But throughout the New Testament, emphasis is placed very often on how God's people are to work together as the church. In fact, in Ephesians 3, in verse 10, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, God's eternal purpose in Christ is in this manifold wisdom God has made known in his church. And this manifold wisdom is that all men and women, no matter their race, their class, their gender, maintain equal share in Christ. They're members of the same body. And they share in the promises of God in Christ in the gospel. We see this in verse 6 regarding Jew and Gentile. It's radical and countercultural then and it's radical and countercultural now. So what is this church thing about, since there's a lot of confusion about it? Well, the Greek word is ecclesia. It means assembly. 
And when the Bible talks about the church, it does so through images. It's already, we've already looked at body. The church has a body. That's how God intends for the church to function. Functions as a body. Different parts working together, working individually, all to build up the whole. But in Romans 8, 15 through 17, and 1 Timothy 3, 5, 15, and Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 and 17, the church is seen as a household of God, a family. That fellow believers can be spoken of as brothers and sisters. God as our father and Jesus as our elder brother. Church is also seen as a temple. A temple is a, a holy place in which divinity is believed to dwell. And Jesus is considered the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are its foundation. Believers are joined together as its living stones filled with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, and 1 Peter 2. So it's in these images that we can see that the church is to be a group of people who have a very strong love for each other, care for each other, and they try to strengthen one another. And the church is spoken of in Ephesians 4, 4 as the one body of Christ. And this is all people who believe in God and serve him. The universal group of believers is the church. But at any given place and time, Christians will meet and identify with one another in smaller, more local groups. We call local churches, like the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. Or the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1. Now these local churches are to maintain offices and perform certain acts. These individual local churches should be shepherded by a plurality of qualified men who serve as elders whenever possible, as we can see in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and 1 Peter 5. Deacons are to serve such churches at the discretion of the elders in Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3.9-12. Evangelists proclaim the gospel and encourage people in the faith in Ephesians 4 and 2 Timothy 4. And local churches assemble to strengthen and encourage its members by remembering the death of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, singing hymns together, praying together, hearing God's word preached together, giving together, and reading the Bible together. In Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and 14, and beginning of 16, Ephesians 5, 19, 1 Timothy 4, 13, and Hebrews 10, and in verse 25. Christians do well to spend time together in one another's homes, we see in 1 Peter 4 9, getting to know one another and to enjoy one another's company. And all of this is getting us toward a great summary that Paul provides us in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, about how the church is supposed to work. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So different offices that we mentioned exist to equip Christians for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. That everyone in the body of Christ seeks to obtain the unity of faith and the knowledge of Jesus to maturity. In this way, Christians are less tempted to be led astray. And Christians will work together to grow more and more into Christ, who holds the whole body together, which allows the body to grow as it builds itself up in love. And so we can see how the Bible tells us what God is doing through the church. That a group of Christians is dedicated to growing and strengthening themselves, each other, and anybody who would draw near. 
And this is very different, if you think about it, from how many religious organizations who claim to represent at least part of the church function. Because again, a lot of people look at the church as a building, a religious organization, or just in terms of a church's assemblies. This is not what God intends. The church is people who assemble and who work to build each other up. And at other times, it does. God wants to see people grow and be strengthened in their relationships with one another, just as he wants people to grow and be strengthened in their relationship with him. So God wants his people to be one as the church. And we understand that church is a body or family. So how is it that we become one? And that, of course, is what Jesus is addressing in John 17, 20-23. That Christians are to be one as the Father and the Son are one. The Son and Christians and the Father and the Son, so as to become perfectly one. And so the unity of God's people is to reflect the unity which exists in God himself. God is one, as we've seen, in nature, character, mind, purpose, and will. And therefore he is one in love and relationship. In Matthew 26, 39, John 1, 14, and 1 John 4. Now, if we're going to be perfectly one, we're going to seek unity in nature, character, purpose, and will, and therefore in love and relationship, just as God manifests within himself. And when we look in the New Testament, we see that that's the kind of unity that is expected. As we said in, saw in Galatians 3.28, all believers are one in standing in equality before God. Not anyone is greater than any other or lesser. In Romans 8 and verse 29, Paul establishes that it is God's goal for all of us to be conformed to the image of the Son. And we demonstrate that when we avoid the works of the flesh and manifest the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 17 through 24. And that's supposed to be true of all believers, not just a few. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul establishes an expectation. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. They've been racked by factionalism. People are following different preachers, different individuals, and Paul is very much against that. Believers are to be united in the same mind and judgment, but that unity is based in love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, anything that we do in Christianity without love is worth nothing. And that leads us to John 13, 35, that by this all men will know that we are the disciples of Jesus if we have love for one another. It's of the greatest importance for us to realize that this unity does not come easily or naturally. After all, Jesus has laid the groundwork for this unity by killing hostility through suffering and dying on the cross in Ephesians chapter 2. And we can see from Paul in Philippians chapter 2 exactly how we're supposed to establish this unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul continue in verses 6-11, through 11, establishing Jesus' great humility and the exaltation God gave him. If you think about it, this is how God has acted toward us. And so how, as God has acted toward us and within himself, that's how we're supposed to act with one another. God has shown us great love that we have not deserved. We're to love one another and love God. 
God is in agreement with himself, and so we need to be in agreement with one another. Jesus was willing to humble himself to accomplish God's will. We must humble ourselves in general and toward one another so we can accomplish God's will. As God has served within himself and for us, so we are to serve God and one another. Matthew 20, 1 Peter 4.10 as well. As God shows care within himself and for us, we are to care for one another and bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. And that continues on and on for all the many one another commandments that we can find in the New Testament. And this is unity that is consistent with the images of the church seen in the New Testament. Families work together because they have some agreement about ideas and behaviors, and they build relationships among each other. And that is what God expects in the church. A body works because the parts work together. What if the two legs try to go in different directions? What if the small intestine decided it was no longer going to work with the stomach? What if the liver felt it was just too good to be part of the body? We would be in deep trouble. It all works because the parts work together, doing their individual functions, but doing it with one another. And when we think about a temple that had a lot of blocks spread over a large area that didn't fit together, we'd call that a ruin. And therefore, for a family, a body, or a temple to be worthy of that name, they must function as one, really working together with deep connections. Anything else is the pretense of unity without its substance. So unity is not easy at all. And as humans who fall short of God's glory, we're not going to be able to realize this unity through our own strength alone. In summary, we can look at a great verse to help us understand this idea of unity in 1 John chapter 1. And in verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So our unity is based in the shared walk in the light, in God and Christ. We must seek that relationship with God that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. But as we walk in the light, we're going to notice that we're going to share that walk with others of the same type of faith. And our relationship with one another is based on that shared relationship with God. And it's to lead us to forge stronger connections with one another. When we walk in that light and have association with each other, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. Now the challenges of unity are very great, but its rewards are much greater. A lot of people are very difficult to live with. Yeah, that's also probably true of us as well. But when we find unity, we find ourselves at home and at rest. Oneness with God and with each other means a life and community that we seek. We don't have to be alone. We don't need to fear abandonment. We can obtain everything that God has made us for. We have the opportunity to have fellowship with God and with one another and encourage one another on this journey we call life. It's the way God intended it for it uh, to be. So therefore we do well to find salvation and life in God and Christ, to strive for unity with God and with one another, and to share in life indeed. We're so glad that you've joined us in this exploration of one another. Perhaps you'd like to consider more about our discussion of the one story with one God, one man, or the one story. We encourage you to uh, look for those. You can look for other messages and, and lessons and opportunities for Bible study and other such things by visiting the Venice Church of Christ website at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on social media. Or you can contact me, Ethan Longhenry, directly at deverbovitae.com, my website. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.